Morning, those of you who are here in the sanctuary, and those of you who are uh, online, those of you who are visiting for the first time, those of you who are investigating the faith, those of you who are committed, wherever you are in your journey of life, we are glad that you are here. We are looking at the book of Acts, continuing our series as we think about who we should be as a church called to express the joy of the gospel in a indifferent and sometimes hostile culture. So we look to the book of Acts for our help. And here in Acts chapter 13, we are taking our second look at a church we were introduced to last week, the church at Antioch. And we will now read the scripture that we'll reflect upon today. Hear God's word. Now there were in the church of Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elemas the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said to him, you son of the devil, you enemy, of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This is God's word. To be honest, it is a moment I don't think I will ever forget. I was at my, one of my sister's homes. She had been investigating the Christian faith for a while, and she asked me a rather provocative question. She said, so Dan, I have been listening to you and others and learning about Christianity, and you mean to tell me that if I don't believe in Jesus, where will I go? Well, I will go to hell, right? And I looked at her. It was a very hard moment in our relationship. It's a very hard thing that is one of the elephants in the room 
about Christianity if you are not a Christian and about following Jesus if you are. We saw last week that we're called to keep Jesus the main thing. But applying that idea of keeping him the main thing means that the main thing entails hard things. The main thing entails saying hard things. Applying the main thing means following Jesus into mission, and that can be, as we see, a hard thing. So let us look at this church, this church called Antioch that we started to look at last week, that they saw they kept Jesus as the main thing, and they deepened themselves in the main thing, and then they applied the main thing by giving generously, and look at another application of the main thing, and that is this that when we love Jesus, we will be sent by Jesus into mission to do a hard thing, to tell the hard news to the world that it needs a Savior, and to tell the good news to the world that it has been given one. So let's look at two snapshots that we have here of this church, because this is a church that almost every church in North America aspires to be like And almost no church, including us, seems to be able to be like, because there's a hard thing in following this church and following Jesus. First snapshot we're going to look at is the the church and the Spirit of God, the Spirit in the church. It's the first couple of verses. And the second thing we're going to look at is the Spirit in the world, the Spirit in the church and how the Spirit interacts with the world. Yes, you're seeing a slide of my first point. Yes, take a moment, acknowledge the astonishing advance of technology we have finally arrived to in 2000. We've caught up with 1992, yes. At least it's on the screen and not in your bulletin. (laughs) Here in this snapshot of Antioch, our second snapshot, new names of church leaders have been given to us. Along with Barnabas and Saul, we hear of three new leaders. Simon, who is called Niger, he's African, possibly from Nigeria. Lucius of Cyrene is from Cyrene, a city in North Africa. He's North African, almost surely. And Menaean, that's a Latinized name of a Jewish person, Menachem. And he is probably originally from Israel, relocated to Antioch, which we now know to be in modern-day Turkey. So we have this cosmopolitan church with a new set of leaders raised up. That tells you something about how the Spirit works in the church. Remember last week, Barnabas was leading, and he went to get Saul because he needed help. And he knew that his gifts alone were not enough. Well, here we see they have raised up other leaders. This is servant leadership. It's an example of the Spirit working in the church. Why is this important? Because as we're going to see, that's what the church is called to do. It's called to keep sending people into the mission of the Lord. And here we pick up the church as a church with leaders. And what are they doing? The scene opens with them worshiping and fasting. Why is that important? Because this church is doing regular things. It's raising up leaders. It's teaching. It's worshiping regularly. But it's doing something that was regular to them and is irregular to us. It was fasting. What is fasting? Fasting is seeking. This church was seeking the Lord seeking his will, seeking his guidance, seeking his wisdom. How? By fasting. 
Fasting is a spiritual discipline. Most of you know it because you're online and you see intermittent fasting as a way to uh, improve your health and let lose weight, get your body ready for your March break. That's not the fasting here. This fasting is a spiritual fasting as a demonstration of dependence and a demonstration of longing. You see, when you stop eating, you're saying there is other fuel that you need another fuel that you desire. You want to meet with the Lord. You are longing. You need His wisdom. You are dependent. Fasting is a desire for God's presence and God's power, for God's wisdom and God's grace. Fasting is a sign of seeking. They are putting themselves in a position to hear from God. That's the first thing I want you to see. They were seeking the Lord. Secondly, when they heard from Him, they sifted His words. It says, He spoke to them, and probably through one of the prophets and teachers that had been mentioned up front, one of them gave the utterance. They heard from God, and they spoke it out, and they heard it, and it said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. That's kind of vague. What's the work to which I have called them? Well, Saul probably knows because he knows he's been called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Barnabas knows Saul is probably called to be. So they probably, those two know, but the rest of the church doesn't. So what do they do? They fast and they pray and they sift to discern what it is they're called to do with Saul and Barnabas. And what does God say? Take your two best leaders that have grown you to become this very prominent church within the Christian community and remove them. Your two most important leaders, give them to me because I want to send them. Again, that's very countercultural. We saw that last week when Barnabas left to go get Saul. These people are willing to give away their best and their brightest. But they're sifting to make sure it's the right thing to do. Now, no offense, men and women, but if I came to you and said, God has called Joe Choi and I to, for you to send us to Florida from January to the end of March every year to do beach ministry, you should sift that <laughs> because it's not true. That's our selfishness and our desire to get away from the cold. But they sifted because they weren't calling them to the beaches of Florida God was calling them to the unreached peoples of the Roman world. If I come up to you in three weeks and say a a leader in our church is feeling called by God to leave here, learn French, and try and minister to and reach the people of Montreal, a very unreached city, we should sift that and consider that that's very likely some part of the mission of God. The first thing I want you to see about this church is they put themselves in a position to hear from God. They sought Him in worship and fasting. And when they heard from Him, they sifted, thinking this was probably from God. What does it mean? This is a church listening to the Spirit because the Spirit of God with the Father and the Son of God are wanting the people of God to go on the mission of God, to spread the good news of God to the ends of the earth. The Spirit of God is God Himself. 
Remember what God the Father said before Jesus came, when, when we only knew about God the Father. God the Father said to Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, this is the very purpose for which I have raised you up, that I would show my power to you and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. That's God the Father. What did God the Son come to do? What was his purpose? He said the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And when he would risen and was about to go back to his Father, he gave us a commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Take the name of God and the love of God and spread it to the world that God has made. And now what is the Spirit's role? It is to apply that commission. Remember what Jesus said the Spirit would do? You will receive power, he said, and the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the utter ends of the earth. Men and women, the God who is the main thing is the God whose main thing is the spreading of him as the main thing to the ends of the earth that we all might make much of him, that the ends of the earth might glory in God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Implications. Firstly, God is enlisting an army, and if you are a Christian, you're part of it. Sorry, it's not a volunteer army, it's conscription. The day you became a Christian is the day you got enlisted. What are we doing as individuals to hear God's voice, to seek God's wisdom? What are we doing as a church to seek God's wisdom for our next steps of going into mission to help this city hear the good news about Jesus? Small groups take time together, fast together, pray together. As you answer the surveys about where you think Grace Toronto should go, have a week of fasting and prayer beforehand. Church, Easter week, we want to make that a week of solemn assembly. We'll be giving you more details, but be prepared to take a week to seek the Lord before we go to Easter. And if you're here and you're investigating Christianity, do you believe that God can speak to humans? I think you're here because you're hoping there's a God who can speak to you. I'm here to tell you there is. There is a God who is willing to speak to you if you will seek him with an open heart. The Spirit is looking for a church that's willing to seek him, that's willing to set aside time to depend upon him and long for his power and his guidance, that's willing to sift his words, and when we hear, to submit to his call to mission. What do you need to put aside to submit to his call to mission? What is it that might be stopping you? What's the elephant in your room that makes you afraid of the hard conversations like the one I had with my sister? Secondly, the spirit in the world. Now, sent out by the Holy Spirit, they go to Cyprus. And they travel the island of Cyprus, and they share the gospel in the synagogues, because that's the only inn that they really have as Jewish people, but no one seems to come to faith. 
you note that Luke genuinely, generally reports when people come to faith. No one seems to be coming to faith here. They go all the way through the island. They finally get to the capital city. And there they meet the proconsul, essentially the governor of the island of Cyprus. But note the sober reality hidden here. They have been spending a fair bit of time here and seeing almost no conversions. Men and women, the gospel is not like inherently sweet or attractive to people in our culture. People inherently know the elephant in the room. I remember talking to someone who said, don't think I haven't been thinking about God from you and Sue talking to me. I've been thinking about it for a long time, but I know God's going to want me to change my lifestyle. So it's a full stop for me. It's not inherently sweet, men and women. When the gospel goes into the world, when the spirit goes into the world, there will be natural and spiritual resistance. So they've come through the whole island, they get to Paphos, and the, and the, the proconsul, the governor of the whole island, he seems interested. But he has a right-hand man who's a sorcerer, kind of like the court sorcerer, the court spiritual shaman. He's a Jewish man named Bar-Jesus, also self-names himself, probably in Cyprus, Elimas. We see opportunity in the proconsul. We see opposition in his right-hand person. And this, men and women, is natural. Wherever you are in your journey of faith, we need, realize, we need to realize this. The gospel is a threat to people in power because the gospel eliminates human power. The gospel makes all of us accountable to an exterior superior power, God himself. The gospel makes all of us accountable to live lives of selflessness and love, not power. The gospel always threatens people in power because it removes the legitimacy of them using that power for themselves. The gospel presents to us a God who left a place of power and embraced a life of weakness. He became a human being. He became a baby. He became vulnerable. And as he grew up, he became a simple carpenter. And then he became a rejected rabbi and then a falsely accused criminal, and then an unjustly killed victim of a society that didn't want his challenge to their religious power. But what is most startling about this meeting to our modern eyes is not that this person objected. It's the way Paul responded to this person who objected. The author Luke here says that Saul, who's also named Paul, this is when they're beginning to transition his name, particularly for a Gentile audience, when he encountered this opponent, what did the filling of the Spirit look like? Now we're Canadians. When we're filled with the Spirit, what does it look like? Well, we're nice. We're even more nice. We take foolish things and we smile at them because the Spirit's empowering us. We take people's lies and, and we just, you know, the Spirit empowers us to overlook them. That's what Spirit-filled Canadians look like, right? I need to tell you the Spirit of God is not a Canadian because the Spirit of God is very different than what we think He should be. 
Paul fixes his gaze upon the man. It says he looked intently at him. He caught his eye. And then he said some startling things. You son of the devil. You enemy of all righteousness. You filled with deceit and villainy. That's quite the description of an opponent, right? That's what, that's what we call people who don't believe in Jesus here, right? If you're a skeptic, that's what you think we call people who believe. We don't. We're too Canadian. This is Ananias and Sapphira language. And we're okay with that because they claim to be Christians. But we would never call a skeptic or an opponent of the gospel that, would we? Skeptic, this is not how we treat non-Christians generally. And you don't think we should. We don't think we should ever say this to you. Christian, you don't think we should ever say this to anybody. Because being filled with the Spirit is always being diplomatic and nice. What do we miss that makes us think this way? Let me tell you what I think we're missing. The Spirit of God, when He comes into the child of God, He does two things. He gives them a tremendous clarity about reality. And then He gives them a tremendous compassion that allows them to be courageous. Clarity and compassion. Firstly, the Spirit, I think, gives us a tremendous clarity to see reality because the Spirit of God doesn't see things the way we do. The Spirit of God looks at all of reality, and what does the Spirit of God see? That the essence of reality is spiritual. How we relate to the God who is. The essence of reality is that it was built by God, who is its creator, who is its sustainer, who is its purpose, its telos, its goal. The ultimate reality is God. The created world is His creation. And the Spirit begins with that reality and then looks at humanity and says, how does humanity work? And it sees humanity as trying to become independent of any accountability to any deity. And it sees humanity's fundamental problem not as racism, not as sexism, not as the dynamics of power and oppression. Those are mere symptoms of the deeper issue. The deepest issue, the ultimate issue, the universal human problem is this. We're alienated from God by our selfishness and our independence. Your most fundamental problem, I don't know where you are in your spiritual journey, but the Spirit knows infinitely that your most fundamental problem, period, relational, ontological, environmental, power dynamic, economical, it is all rooted in your relationship to God. How do we know that? Because when God sent His Son, He sent Him for no small reason. He sent Him for the big reason. And why did Jesus come? He came to deal with the problem of sin. Sinners we are. Separated from God, we become by our sin. Christian, what do you need to know as the fundamental reality? It is that God exists and we exist to have a relationship with Him and we are alienated from Him by our sin and the Son of God came by the, 
by the calling of the Father of God to solve the sin of the world, which is the problem that is essential. It wrecks our relationship with God. It ruins our relationship with each other. We become selfish. We become corrupt. We become self-seeking. That's where power dynamics come. Oppression comes. Sexism comes. Racism comes. That's where the problem of power originates from. It's from this. The Spirit sees with infinite clarity what we see foggy. But the real issue is our relationship and alienation from God that sin has created. And therefore, the solution to all of humanity's problems is also seen with infinite clarity by the Spirit of God. Who did Jesus come for? Everyone who is alienated from God. What did Jesus come to address? The thing that alienates us from God, our sin. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Your sins have made a separation between you and God. What did Jesus come to address? Our sin. How did he solve it? He offered up himself. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. How important is this solution? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes should not perish but have everlasting life. That's a pretty important solution. Eternity hangs in the balance. How thorough is this solution? He says, I'm coming back and he will come and bring a new heaven and a new earth. He's going to remake the world in all of its purity and all of its perfection. He's going to remake humanity in purity and perfection. Why do we love Avatar? Because it's a world of great purity and great beauty, and we long for it. And psychologists tell us that every time Avatar comes out, a new wave of people come into their offices with depression because life isn't like Avatar. What is that longing? That longing is for what only God can create. James Cameron imagines it, but God will create it even better than James Cameron says it. That's the solution. The Spirit sees with great clarity that the problem is sin and alienation from God. The solution is Jesus, and all of life needs to be seen through these two things. Therefore, opposition to the gospel is seen by the Spirit with great clarity. It is wrong. It is lying. The reality is Jesus rose from the dead. He really is God. And anyone who denies it is out of touch with reality. We can call them a teller of untruth. We can call them in league with the devil who spiritually is opposing the truth. And that's what Paul does. You son of the devil. You enemy of righteousness. You are making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. You see what he's doing? He's taking the infinite clarity of his sight that the Spirit has given him, and he's applying it to the opposition he sees. For it, this man is opposing truth, that Jesus really is God. This man is opposing reality, that all of life revolves around Jesus and your relationship with God and who you think Jesus is, full stop. I know many of us don't believe in the devil, even some of us who call ourselves Christians. We somehow believe in evil, 
and we somehow believe in personal choice. We believe in consciousness, even though our worldview says that we came from an impersonal universe of time and chance and evolution. There's no consciousness in time or chance or evolution. There's no morality in those things. There's no evil or good. But somehow, out of all of this impersonal sources, we have morality, consciousness, good, evil. How about the idea that there are personal foundations for all these elements of personality? How about there's a God who is pure love and good, and there is an anti-God, an adversary. That's what the word Satan means. It means adversary. Application. If you're here and you're investigating Christianity, I know there's an elephant in the room. You don't want people to have the conversation I was having with my sister. You think it's okay for people who see the deep systemic problems of racism, privilege, and oppression to shout them from the rooftops because those things are true and we need to hear them, and you're right. If they're true, we need to hear them. But you need to understand, if Jesus rose from the dead, then Jesus really is the Savior of your soul, and your sin separates you. And Christians should be allowed to shout that from the rooftop because it's true. Give us permission to tell you about Jesus. My sister said, I'm going to hell, right? And I had a choice, didn't I? If you're a Christian and you've ever been in my shoes, you know the temptation. You want to dial down the rough edges of that hard news. I prayed as she just stared at me and as the silence hung. And I said, I'm sorry, but that is what Jesus says. It's not me who says it. It's why he came. She didn't talk to me for three months. I had to bear the cost of doing the hard thing when Jesus was the main thing who called me into mission. There's a cost. You'll have to say hard things. You're not used to saying. Skeptics, people investing in Christianity, you need to be willing to let us say the hard things. Christian, you need to see the world with the clarity the Spirit had. And see the solution with the clarity the Spirit has. And allow your compassion for that person to overcome your fear of offense. And find the courage to tell them the truth. How do I know that it's compassion that fueled Paul into courage. I don't completely know. But look what Paul tells him to do. Look what Paul predicts. Look what the Spirit gives Paul. You're going to go be blind and you're going to be led around for a few days. Who does that remind you of? Who experienced just that exact thing? Paul himself. That is his story. This person that he was predicting this from and that the Spirit had told him to was going to reenact his life. How could he not have compassion upon himself when he was lost? It's that compassion that he must have felt that helped give him the courage to tell that person. 
It's the compassion that impelled Jesus to come to our world and not only heal people, but tell people the hard thing. That they were out of line with God by their independence, their selfishness, and their sin. That they needed to repent and have faith in Him to be forgiven of their sin. That the ultimate reality for which He came was that issue. And then after telling the world that the world rejected Him and killed Him, He gave His life for them. But He had the courage to both tell them the truth and the compassion to live the truth. Grace Toronto, where are we? Are we like Antioch, willing to hear, seek from God, willing to sift his words and his guidance, and then willing to submit and send people to reach more people? Are we willing when we're sent, and we are all sent, are we willing to have the hard conversations? Are we willing to give the hard news to people that they're not as good as they think they are? but they're much more loved than they imagined they could be because God sent his son for them. This is who God has called every church to be. This is our calling. Let it be. Father, I thank you for this time and I pray that we would become this kind of church, a church that seeks you, submits to you, sends people out, sends ourselves out, and has the hard conversations because we see with clarity what the main thing is. And we see with compassion the need that overcomes our fear. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Why is it that Grace Toronto does not do churchwide fasting and prayer like they do in Acts? Exactly. We're about to. Great question. How did the rest of the conversation with your sister go? Thank you. I was going to do it for communion, but I'll do it now. The proconsul believed. My sister is now the head of prayer at her church in Montreal. No question, just amen. Amen. I... Uh, uh, that's a personal one. I'll answer that one. Email me. Someone brought uh, uh, a relative to church uh, who's having a tough time. I think that's more appropriately done privately and pastorally. Finally, the biblical meaning of the word calling. I have called you. I have a calling to go to mission. There is a general calling, and then there is a personal calling that's sometimes seasonal. A general calling is you are a Christian, you are called to be a child of God, you are called to follow, worship, seek, be sent, share the good news. That's a general calling. You have particular callings in particular seasons of life. When you're a student, your calling is to excel as a student. When you're a father or a mother, that is part of your calling at that season of life. Those, so there are specific callings that change over seasons, and there are some callings that never change. I'm called to be God's child for the rest of my life. The day I married my beautiful wife, I was called to be her husband for the rest of our lives. When Shayla was born, I had another calling, son of God, son of, son of 
son of God. Husband, father, they're all callings that I will have for my lifetime. But I was also called to be a lawyer and a youth worker and campus worker and now a pastor. Those things change. I hope that helps. Your callings change over time. Your calling never changes. You are called to be in relationship with God and out of that relationship to make Him the main thing and spread the knowledge of Him so that He is the main thing everywhere. Let's pray. Father, I thank You and praise You. Help us to respond to You rightly in Christ's name. Amen. Please rise for the song of response. Mm -hmm.